0: Well, let's get straight into our uh, conversation for this hour. Uh, Joining us, we are, uh, unfortunately, we've lost Dr. Uh, Tony Kambimasha. He's with the Walter Sisulu uh, University, was said to be one of our guests this hour. But he's had some pressing matters at the university to attend to uh, this morning. So he'll no longer be part of our conversation. That said, let me welcome Professor Ben Cousin, Emeritus Professor at the University of the Western Cape. Professor Cousin, good morning to you thanks for your time this morning
1: good morning Cathy thank you for having me
0: Nolundi Luwaya is director of the land and accountability research center at the University of Cape Town Nolundi good morning to you
2: good morning Cathy and good morning to your listeners
0: I was saying earlier that one of the things that often comes up when we talk about land in a South African context is that it's described as the unresolved issue of of land and often pointed to as one of the key failures of a post-democratic South Africa. Uh, Professor Cousin, what is this unresolved issue of land?
1: I think there are two dimensions to this, Kathy. Most fundamentally, it's the distribution of land. and Who holds what quantities of land of what uh, kind of quality? Uh, There's massive inequality in land ownership in both uh, rural areas, but also in urban areas, particularly in respect to high-value land. That reflects the wider inequality in society. That was the inheritance of apartheid and colonialism before that. Uh, Structural inequality, which actually gave rise to many of the key problems in our society. Unfortunately, land reform, which was designed to reduce that inequality, uh, relatively quickly and dramatically has not succeeded in doing so. The other uh, reason for this is actually the the political imperative uh, to see rapid change in our society. Uh, and that politics is alive and well and it's the the slow pace of, of land reform has given rise to massive dissatisfaction across the political spectrum it's a live political issue it was at the core of national debate in 2018-2019 around the question of expropriation it has been not resolved at all and so the economic uh, and and the political dimensions Uh, in relation to land reform have not really been resolved. That, I think, is the unresolved land question in South Africa today.
0: Uh, Thanks for that, Professor Cousins. Nolundi?
2: Yeah, Cathy, I mean, I I don't disagree with uh, Prof Cousins's input. I think um, that what we are sitting with, you know, when we we think about the unresolved issue of land um, is also the question of how do we secure the rights that people have? Um, And so as as Prof is pointing out, we inherited a system uh, from colonialism and apartheid that had also sought to undermine whatever land rights black people held, whether that was, you know, through a system of African customary law or whether it was relationships like labor tenancy. Um, and so what we're also trying to do is undo uh, a dedicated and sort of decided undermining um, and reduction of, of the land rights um, of black South Africans. Um, and so in addition to you know, these important points about changing um, the demographic of, of land ownership in our country, um, there is also this act of kind of actively seeking to now give um, protection, recognition to rights that were uh, severely undermined and disregarded uh, during our past.
0: Of course, if if we look into our past, one um, does not fall short of examples that show the extent to which um, there were discriminatory policies and measures uh, put in place around the issue of land. This morning, however, we're talking about 110 years since the Natives Land Act 27 of 1913. Professor Cousins. Why was that such a a crucial moment? And why is it that we sort of have to almost go back and look at what happened in that moment to understand then how the corrective aspect would need to come in 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 2023?
1: Sure, look, in in, um, in 1913, the Native Land Act Uh, set in place at a national level a a decisive separation between uh, areas set aside for black ownership, black landholding, and white ownership, uh, the rest of South Africa. Uh, The the Land Act set aside 7% of the land area for areas where black people could hold land. Uh, later on uh, it was expanded to about another six percent so it became the total of 13 percent those are ba- basically the area occupied by the former nature reserves or bantustans as they became known over time so the symbolic uh, significance of the land act was this uh, national legislation which prescribed where people were allowed to own land along racial lines however it must be pointed out as many historians have done that the decisive acts of dispossession of uh, black land had taken place largely before 1913. Uh, For example, through the 19th century, in the early years of the 20th century, the grabbing of land by the minority of settlers in order to set up a capitalist economy which served them in order to create a labor force of cheap labor, provided mostly by African workers that had taken place in the previous 20 50 to 60 years so it was cementing into place an already unequal land ownership dispensation it did not initiate it it set it in stone and made it a legislative policy of the whole the whole country that is its significance and what this i think uh, initiates is a major discussion over the last century and a half about the role that law can play in creating divisions within society law has been a key instrument both of oppression and of uh, attempts to change and and uh, remove those structural impediments and uh, as nolundi will tell you law continues to be a key weapon in our struggle for the security of land rights for black south africans
0: it's an issue that also conjures up a great deal of of pain Uh, Professor Cousins, when people talk about it, um, just because of how it it was done, the brutal nature in which it was carried out.
1: Absolutely. You know, um, a survey carried out uh, maybe 10 to 15 years ago by an American political scientist uh, showed that some 60 to 70% of all respondents had a family member At some remove, who had been directly affected by dispossession, mostly forced removals. And in fact, there are many South Africans today who still remember the uh, personal experiences of uh, of brutal uh, forced removals, dispossession. So it lives on as a key issue. And even for young people who've just heard these stories in their families, it remains a key symbol of the way in which we've in the post-apartheid project, we have actually not succeeded in fundamentally, trans- fundamentally transforming the inheritance uh, of the past.
0: And, and I want to go to this clip. And basically, it is a, a conversation talking and looking back at, at the summary of, of the Act from 1913 uh, to, to to 1993, rather.
3: 1913, a definitive year in South African history. This is the year black people were legally dispossessed of their land, confining over 80% of the population to about 13% of the land in the country. 1923 saw the Native Urban Areas Act take effect. This law allowed for white local authority to control the influx of blacks in their areas. It gave them the powers to remove Africans who, for example, were not allowed in a particular area. In 1936, an amendment to the 1913 Land Act is passed. It's called the Native Trust Land Act. It is described as a law that has an effect of widening the 1913 Land Act. In 1950, the Group Areas Act is passed. This law helped establish particular neighborhoods according to racial groups. 1951 sees the passing of the Prevention of Illegal Squatters Act, a law that gave magistrates the power to remove blacks and demolish their housing structures without prior notice. The Bantu Authorities Act is also passed in 1951, giving some power to tribal authorities. In 1952, The Bantu Laws Amendment Act gave the then-state the right to appoint and fire tribal chiefs. The Natives Land Act of 1913 is amended in 1964 to allow the abolition of labor tenancy by means of proclamation, meaning black tenants on white farms can now be classified as squatters. A temporary agreement is reached on the return of certain communities to their land in 1993. This ushers in a new dawn on the land issue.
0: And uh, Nolundi, this this clip is taken from our archives here at the SABC. And you heard as it ended off the hope then that was present just at the onset of democracy around what would happen under a democratic democratic government. 29 years on, of course, a lot of that hope seems to have fallen flat.
2: That's correct, Kathy. I mean, you know, the the uh, Land Restitution um, Act was one of the first laws that then President Mandela uh, passed uh, during his tenure as president, um, and it did. It signaled an incredible moment of hope uh, and a moment of rectifying all of uh, you know the damage that had been done through the legacy of the Land Act. Fast forward to where we are now, um, and programs like the restitution program are now really proving um, that you know they're they're struggling to address this issue. Um, All of the hope uh, that was placed on the restitution program, for example, um, hasn't yielded results. There are still communities who had put in claims uh, back in 1998 that are still awaiting resolution of those claims. So it becomes really clear that what we're in need of um, is a more diversified approach, that we need to think about other ways uh, of how we restore um, people with their land. And I think that point that you were making earlier, that it's not just about uh, a physical loss of land or, you know, to put it flippantly, uh, a change of address. What we're actually grappling with here is that as people were dislocated from their land, they were also dislocated from places of cultural reference, um, identity connections, historical connections. And so what you're seeking to restore is not just necessarily a relationship with a particular geographic point, but you're also seeking to restore you know a sense of identity, community, etc. And perhaps the law and legal processes like a claim for restitution are not the only way to do that. And we need to start thinking about other ways of trying to uh, acknowledge the wounds that were caused and to restore them somewhat differently.
0: Nolundi, on the issue of um, redistribution, right, often there seems to be a, a distinction made between farmland and other land. And this is where... It, it tends to get quite heated because um, Professor Cousins was talking about economies that were built up around arable land, et cetera. And that really has become the farming community on this country, which is in many ways a significant part of, 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 of our GDP.
2: Absolutely, Kathy. I think uh, you know the farmland and the the large-scale agricultural projects that uh, are carried out as part of our country's economic plan have their place. But the focus can't just be on uh, you know sort of protecting the rights and securing um, large-scale agriculture. Uh, you know there are many sort of small-scale projects, small-scale initiatives uh, that are e- either happening at a community level or they're happening. And I think the kind of idea of agriculture needs to be expanded to include protection and recognition of those smaller scale initiatives and projects, um, because those are also part of what contribute to notions of food security. Uh, You know, those are also initiatives that sustain communities um, who don't necessarily uh, want to continue to rely on large scale agriculture. So the focus on agriculture, uh, you know, is not necessarily misplaced, but I do think that it is quite narrow and really only conceives of it as being about large-scale operations.
0: Right. We'll continue this conversation in a moment. Uh, Nolundi Luwaya, Director of the Land and Accountability Research Centre at UCT and Professor Ben Cousins, Emeritus Professor at the University of the Western Cape. It's time now for your latest news headlines.
4: The Talking Point with Kathy Sasana. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday.
0: We continue the conversation on the talking point. We're reflecting on 110 years since um, the Native Land Act of 1913 and really asking questions around this unresolved issue of land in the country. Uh, Professor Ben Cousins, one of our guests, so is Nolundi Luaya. Professor Cousins, I want to come to you and just get your reflections on the commitment that had been made by government. I mean, one of the figures that was put down is that by 1999, there was a push that at least 30% of, in particular, white farmland that would have been redistributed uh, to black communities. That has has not been the case. And often when we hear how this conversation is framed, at least today, um, is that The attempts at redistribution are really wanting to take assets that some have worked very hard for, have put in a lot of money and investment into, and give it to people that are undeserving and don't even know how to maintain the commercial um, viability of 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 that asset. That's part of how, very simplistically, the conversation is often framed.
1: Yeah, look, um, Kathy, one has to say that uh, land reform uh, is uh, is near to death. It is limping along. It's barely alive. It's a minor kind of welfare program for a few black farmers, restitutions, a complete mess, and tenure reform. Uh, is dead in the water. Things are very, very bad. And one has to say that uh, government's commitments, for example, to redistribute 30% of land in five years, were somewhat unrealistic given the scale of the problems. It slowly dawned on people uh, that this was a massive and complex problem. Uh, You know, in in five years, it was only possible to really set up the, 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 the beginnings of a program if we were in for the long haul. So there's been a gradual realization that this is a a big issue, a big and complex issue, and progress isn't going to be fast. But unfortunately, you know, compromises are always necessary, um, but compromises can either succeed in putting something on a solid footing or compromises can fail. Compromises can lead to the undermining of any capacity to implement a complex programme like land reform. I think uh, at the moment, uh, for the last 20 years, we've actually been in that that, uh, phase of, declining capacity. With regards to the redistribution of productive assets from a relatively productive white, largely agricultural uh, community, large-scale commercial farmers to poor Black people, I think that uh, we have to notice that there's been a right-wing backlash against land reform uh, on the part of society. And AgriSA and others representing white farmers uh, have have, uh, effectively uh rubbish the program and said no you can't this is actually going to lead to food insecurity it's lead to a loss of export uh, earnings uh and they've done that quite deliberately and of course have been enabled to do so by the failures of government so we have a case of a failing state and we have a, a, a case of a powerful set of interests who are protecting uh, their own uh, position in the sun uh, to say that uh the victims of dispossession Uh, can never farm productively or use land in a productive way uh, is not actually accurate. Uh, what we're doing is we're taking the result of failure and saying oh, that was always going to be the inevitable outcome but i, do, I think the evidence suggests otherwise even today without any kind, real kind of support from anyone very much there are hundreds and thousands of successful small-scale farmers producing for informal markets very very efficiently they farm both product uh, irrigated Produce like uh, vegetables and fruit, and livestock in particular. They obviously can't compete with uh, large-scale farmers using combine harvesters to produce maize on a massive scale. But in certain kinds of commodities, they are very, very competitive. I think that that view that uh, if we redistribute productive assets uh to the rural poor to black south africans that we will have a disaster on our hands is not an inevitability it has to be seen and assessed as an intervention at this particular moment in time which is basically holding back land reform from moving forward and unfortunately many people in the ANC and in government hold to that view Uh, and uh, this came through very strongly in, in COVID. Uh, when the white farmers continued to produce food for the country, and they became the heroes of our society, instead of being the Bura, those who had been benefited from dispossession, who need to play a key role in redistributing assets, they became the heroes of the day. And I think there's been this massive rollback in progressive thinking about the role of land reform. Uh, and unfortunately, we at, at this moment in time, government does not inspire confidence. In the last two weeks. The deputy president, Paul Mashatila gave a speech in parliament in which he talked about redistributing uh, 750,000 hectares of state-owned land. That was an old idea put forward four or five years ago by the Minister of Agriculture, and it's been rubbished because most of that state land is actually occupied already. It is not available for redistribution. What we need to do is buy land from the large-scale commercial farming class and redistribute to people in need. That is what a real land reform would involve.
0: Nolindi, the role of, of politics in this conversation has been incredibly significant because we've seen it move from being something that of course is important to south africans but also becoming a political hot potato in parliament between political parties used for politicking and you know one very much will be looking with keen interest to see what happens as we enter sort of the the next sort of election uh, cycle heading into into next year has that taken away from what the true essence of land reform and land redistribution is supposed to be and was intended to be, so so when Professor Cousin says that it, the the ideas around reform are barely alive, the will is barely alive, is it because the, there's just no appreciation of the importance? of what this will mean and what it means for our society.
2: I think that's right, Cathy. I mean, I, the way in which the uh, the topic and issue of land um, is used in the political arena has been um, really a, a, a point of concern because of course, it is. it's used as you know a kind of a, a way to uh, galvanize people um, particularly around elections it's used as you know a mechanism for scoring points between political parties uh, if you take for example uh, the recent debates about um, expropriation uh, and the need you know to change expropriation laws to allow for expropriation without compensation that entire debate and the processes around it, I would characterize really as a red herring, um, because you know I am, am of the opinion that actually the framework of the constitution would make it possible to test the waters around expropriation without compensation, without the need to make you know these promises about new laws and changing the constitution um, and a range of other matters that were raised at the time. So the Politicking around the issue of land does take away from genuine invested thinking, uh, invested um, you know, planning um, and bringing to life creative uh, and advanced ways of, of bringing land reform uh, further along in the process. And so what we lose by using land as this political uh, point scoring device. Um, is that we lose the ability to actually concede what is failing. You know, we lose the ability to have honest conversations about where we are, what has failed, what could work, and the need to make changes. You know, the ANC held on uh, to the willing buyer, willing seller principle, for example, for a very long time um, and really, you know, did not want to entertain any kinds of conversations around changing that that played a particular role in stunting the ability to advance land reform and it's not something that's required by the constitution so the kind of political point scoring really does hurt the ability to progress uh, with land reform because of course what that means is each political party is trying to upstage the other um, and no one is actually beginning to think in coherent um, and you know incisive ways how it is that we can address the problem
0: this, this issue around the right-wing elements that have been fighting um, ideas around redistribution quite strongly, the result of that, Nolundi, is that today you talk about land redistribution and it's almost, it's controversial from the get-go. It incites, you know, either a very strong response for or a strong response against. And again, it seems that part of that historic mission around it has been betrayed because this is not supposed to be a controversial issue.
2: Mm. Yeah, I I think part of the the challenge is that, you know, um, there are those in our country who are really reluctant to acknowledge that the issue of land uh, is racialized, um, you know, that based on our history, based on, uh, you know, where we come from, there is a racial dynamic to the question of land reform. That doesn't necessarily mean that we need to now, you know, create good and bad characters, but we do need to be honest about the factor uh, of race within this question of land. And if we are able to have an honest conversation about the place of of race uh, when it comes to the question of land, then we're able to think in different ways about how we address the question. You know, so to go back to my earlier point that what you're talking about here is not just giving back uh, a geographical um, spot, you know, on a map. What you're also talking about is restoring a history, restoring an identity, restoring a community. And if you look at it like that, then the the kind of prospect and issue of race within land reform perhaps becomes less threatening. But it has become an incredibly sensitive topic, in part because perhaps there are unfinished conversations around the impact, the racialized impacts um, of our colonial and apartheid history. And if we can find a way to have those conversations, then we can acknowledge knowledge that, you know, land reform um, and the question of land uh, is severely racialized. And there's a reason for that. But that doesn't necessarily create good and bad people. Um, but it is really, really important to accept that that is part of the land history. And we can't de-racialize land or pretend uh, that it's a neutral issue um, that emerges from a neutral history, because that simply is not the case.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to be taking some calls on this conversation. 086-000-2032 is the number to dial. I'll kick it off with Mercia Andrews. Mercia, you're the regional convener um, of the Rural Women Assembly for Southern Africa. And I imagine you have a lot to say on this issue because you particularly are dealing with women that have been affected by this um, disposition, lack of land ownership
5: as well. Uh, good morning uh, to you and the listeners. Uh, thank you for, for having me. I, I've i been listening to to Ben and Nalundi, and I I must say I generally agree uh, with, or I agree with most of what they're saying. I, I want to add two uh, dimensions. One is, of course, the issue that raised about women, but I also want to talk about uh, farm workers and um, the situation that farm workers find themselves in. So I I think um, for me the starting point is the fact that what we see uh, across many parts of our country is a continuation of the Legacy of the Land Act. Um, In the last period, I'm not sure we've or on a This um, more than a million farm workers and farm uh, dwellers and labor tenants were evicted uh, from land. This is since this is in the period uh, 2005 up until now. So this is almost um, equivalent to what we've in the 1913 Land Act. And this situation hasn't ended. Uh, In the last period where we work with farm workers um, in the Breida River Valley, in the Overberg and different parts of the Western Cape, we have daily occurrences of uh, families, entire families being evicted. Uh, families have nowhere to go. They've lived in, in many instances, lived and worked on farms, on white commercial farms for 20 years, some even longer. So this process, um, in my view of uh, evictions, uh, it's continued, and what we see as we saw then um is the rise all over the country of growing rural informal settlements? If you uh, if you drive through the Western Cape, outside Krabou, you see a very massive uh, new uh, township that emerged. And most of those people, we did a survey there recently. Most of them were ex-farm workers. If you go to the Durban outside in Storflank, and you ask people where do you come from, they were evicted from farms. Wherever you go across parts of the, the Western Cape, and you can say throughout different parts of the country, uh, a similar situation has emerged. We have, together with uh, Bayes' organization, ask others, we've repeatedly called for a moratorium, on evictions from farms. We've repeatedly uh, raised the fact that um, we do not um, see that the current law if the Extension of Security of Kenya Act is um, sufficient protection uh, for farm workers who have lived and continue to work um, the land Part of um, those who produce uh, food and provide, um, uh, cont- make contributions to the economy of this country, there's no pro- adequate protection. So I'm flagging this as a very important um, aspect uh, to talk about when we look class- at. Um, the legacy of the 1913 Land Act.
0: Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for 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 for, for, for that input there, Moshe. Uh, Professor Cousins, do, do you have anything to contribute um, to what Moshe has said?
1: Uh, just to say, Cathy, <clears throat> that uh, Mersha is is completely correct. There are two major categories of black South Africans who do not uh, enjoy secure land rights. The first is the constituency that Nalundi works uh, mainly with, which is people in the former reserves of bantustans, the so-called communal areas, who live under forms of land tenure derived from custom. Those rights have still not been recognized in a national law which conveys them real security of tenure. And the second big category is people who live and work on farms, the farm workers and farm dwellers that Mercer is talking about. Both groups have been utterly betrayed by the poor progress of land reform and the neglect of tenure reform as a as a land reform program by the government. The thing about the farm workers and the farm dwellers, Kathy, is that we have to understand their role in the labor process. Uh, commercial agriculture has been uh mechanizing over the last 30 or 40 years, there are fewer jobs in agriculture than there were before. Uh, many of them are now part time or casual workers rather than full time workers. Conditions and, on farms have altered. And we have to take account of the economics of that, as well as thinking about the the legal uh, rights that they, they can and should enjoy. So here we have to actually also provide, I think, a critique of large-scale commercial capitalist agriculture in the world today which is already in question because of its disastrous impacts on climate change we need to think about alternative farming systems uh, which can create more employment rather than less and therefore i think we need to think about small-scale farming uh, as another part of the agricultural landscape so yes tenure security for farm workers and farm dwellers but let's also think about the agrarian question at the same time
0: Yeah, really, really important. Uh, Nolundi?
2: Uh, I agree. Mercia raises uh, critical points about the struggles of farm workers, um, and you know, as she points out, despite the fact that farm workers' rights are protected through a law called the Extension of Security of Tenure Act (ESTA), um, evictions continue to take place. And what that means is that, again, people are not just necessarily, uh, you know, being um, moved from from one place to another. It's a loss of a home. It's a loss of access to graves where you know family members might have been buried. Um, its loss of, uh, you know, homes that people have invested in that they've tried to improve, and all of that is ripped away, despite there being legal protection uh, that should provide them with uh, security. And it really points to uh, an earlier point that that Ben made around the role of law. You know, our country has no shortage of laws, Cathy, um, but our laws are significantly weakened because we have inadequate implementation. um, And we also have, uh, you know, the very real fact that the laws are having to apply in a context where uh, the deep inequalities that are caused by land dispossession haven't been addressed. Um, And when you're working in in that type of environment, it poses a real challenge to the efficacy uh, of laws that are well intended and that are supposed to provide protections uh, for vulnerable groups. And so I I think Monsieur is right to flag that. Um, And it also, of course, has a devastating impact um, for women farmers in particular.
0: All right. Uh, Anonymous in Limpopo, good morning.
2: Good morning,
6: morning, ma'am. How are you?
0: I'm well, thank you, Anonymous.
6: I'm I'm good as well, ma'am. Should I proceed? Yes, please. Oh, thank you, ma'am. Um, if you can look at the intention of the 1913 Land Act was to dispossess the legitimate owners of the ownership of their land. And not only the land itself, what is beneath the, the land, uh, mean the resources, the, the minerals, and also the the greatness of of, of of the environment. So once you dispossess a person from this land, it means, in other words, his dignity is uh, at stake and has, uh, the stage of uh, striking poverty. Uh, and you will ask yourself as to why would there are a lot of black people suffering in this um, land uh, which is rich in minerals. It is because of the system or the intervention of the Land Act. And if one is to look at before the Land Act, land was indeed uh, being, little by little, illegally been stolen. It was that the Land Act was to legitimize the theft. So uh, if you can, uh, you can look at the, the manner in which it was before, the land belonged to the indigenous people of Africa the uh, likes of the khoi Sands and the khoi, khoi and other indigenous individuals, meaning that land belongs to them. And if we can look at the history of, of, of Africa, we cannot safely say that if land is in the possession of uh, the indigenous people, they cannot survive. No, right. they did survive them. They All did right. survive uh, many, many, many millennia. They even built pyramids to that effect. So therefore, it means, uh, opportunity should be given to blacks uh, also to other indigenous uh, uh disadvantaged majorities. I cannot say minority. Mm. So then man um if you can look uh the government itself um although I, I can I can safely put it like it's white corner when it comes to them because they are sitting land at the backs of the blacks Well, most of us, we don't know. We only hear that they came from another country, Portland, yeah, and invested in wives and stuff. But what are they doing for the blacks? All right. Uh, Anonymous,
0: thanks for that contribution out in Limpopo. Percy, in my good morning.
6: Good morning, this is Katie Uh, and your guests. Thank you to having me. Uh, you see, this issue of land distribution is a serious problem in South Africa. We are not benefiting nothing, they're the land owners. This thing, I think they are supposed to call it politician uh, land distribution. are uh, the one who owns farm who benefit benefiting, this is Katie. And uh, 1993, we make a land claim. It was looted in 1998. Even as we speak for 10,500 hectares. We've got only 520 And it's so difficult for government to give allocators 9,800 back to us. We are struggling. This thing often it doesn't work at all in South Africa. I don't know why they, they keep in, they're making public hearings say they are going to amend 1625. But 1918, eight, the teams are still stuck to the fiscal.
1: Yeah,
0: and, and that's been one of the biggest problems, Percy. The fact that even the, the platforms that, that have been established to deal with this issue have been incredibly under-resourced. And it comes back to that as something that was raised earlier. Um, by, by prof- Professor Cousins when when he uh, characterised the land issue distribution and political imperative to actually deal uh, with these unresolved matters. A couple of your WhatsApp voice notes and then we'll wrap it up with
1: our guests. Professor.
4: Kathy, I'm enjoying your programme and I'm a farm owner in the KZN province. Can your guests explain clearly because you have farm workers and farm dwellers and more often than not it is hardly ever spoken about the issue of people that will just move into your farm and build and stay there they've never worked for you they've never worked in your farm they never got permission to live in your farm from yourself or from anyone that has authority And at the end of the day, you, as the owner of the property, it would seem as though your rights are so limited versus to the rights of the people that have sort of invaded your land, and that's never spoken about. My name is Sipo, in KZN.
3: good morning kathy and to your guest as well i just want to find out from your guest is there any uh, sort of blame that this nc government um can shoulder regarding the section 25 of the of the land and uh, of the constitution regarding land um especially in times of nelson mandela sir ramaphosa during the negotiation times uh, towards uh, our democracy towards 94. um is, is there any uh, blame that they can shoulder uh, since we're finding ourselves in this situation and uh, the constitution favoring the owners of the, uh, the previous owners of the land and um, um, uh, being unfavorable to um, those that were dispossessed until to date. Yeah, this is claba from the Eastern Cape, thank you.
0: All right, those are just some of your contributions on the WhatsApp line. We do have a few more, um, and I've, I'm looking at the time. We don't have enough time to give our guests an opportunity to respond uh, to some of the questions you raised in the WhatsApp voice notes. We'll do that on the other side of the latest news update.
4: The Talking Point with Kathy Mosasana Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday.
0: Six after 11 o'clock, welcome to the third and final hour of The Talking Point. Before we get into our final conversation for the day, I want to give our guests from the previous hour an opportunity to wrap as we conclude our conversation on reflecting on 110 years of the Native Land Act of 1913. Nolundi, let me allow you to have uh, you say first in response to uh, some of the issues raised by our callers and listeners on the WhatsApp line.
2: Thanks, Kathy. So I think uh, you know your callers raised some really important questions uh, and points. Cipor, um, you know, spoke about uh, land invasions in KZ then um, where. Uh, where they hold a farm um and i think that you know the, the issue of land of invasions is a very difficult one um and is actually quite uh, prominent in kzn at the moment and in part you know it stems from desperate community members and desperate people who need somewhere to live but of course on the other side you also have uh, opportunistic people who take advantage of that desperation um and do things like you know sell uh, plots on, on land that's been invaded. Um, and all of this, of course, does circle back to the question about those who are landless and therefore homeless and what to do and how one addresses the uh, those particular um, matters. Um, and then uh, your caller from the Eastern Cape, uh, had asked the question about whether the ANC can shoulder any blame. Um, I think in part, yes, they can. Um, as I mentioned before, in part, you know, their uh, um, adamant position around willing buyer, willing seller has played a role uh, in the pace of land reform. But of course, as the, the government tasked with moving our country, uh, you know, through its transitional period and into a different future, um, it does come back to their their political will, uh, to do what needs to be done to advance land reform. So really, I think your callers are are speaking to just how um, prominent uh, and how important these issues are.
0: Thanks for that, Nulundi. Professor
1: Cousins? Yeah, just uh, on uh, Kleber's point about the negotiations and whether any blame can be attached to leaders from the liberation movement, Look, I think what we have to do is uh, realistically acknowledge that we had a negotiated settlement. There were long drawn out negotiations about the nature of the settlement, about the nature of the new constitution which which would come into being. And of course, the question of land and property rights centered centrally uh, in uh, in those negotiations. The resulting compromises are set out clearly in the property clause in the constitution. Uh, it's a balancing act, it's finely balanced between on the one hand the need to uh, provide redress for the past, there's a constitutional obligation to undertake land reform to secure people's rights and so on. On the other hand, to provide some protection for those who benefited in the past in order to allow for continuity. I think it's hard to criticize those uh, compromises uh, from this vantage point in time. I think the real question is not so much about the detail of that. But about how that constitutional vision has been uh embodied in an implementation program so here i think we have to deal have to wrestle with another set of complex realities which are the very demanding administrative requirements of implementing a land reform program which composes tenure reform for very different kinds of Uh, groupings, as we acknowledge, not only farm workers, but also people living on communal land, but also a restitution program with immense complexities, uh, including uh, the requirement that we verify and approve of people's basis for a land claim, plus a wide-ranging redistribution program. All of those have land administration components. Um, The complexity of this program has, in fact, overwhelmed the new state. And I think that speaks to many other issues uh, which which face our country today, not least of which, of course, is energy supply. So I think uh, it's very easy (laughs) post hoc to say, you know, big mistakes were made. The question is, how can one realistically address them in the present? Um, And for that, I think, you know, what you need is astute political leadership, but you also need strong commitments to honoring the Constitution, to doing the best you can. All right. And unfortunately, in the political sphere, uh, we've lost the plot and we don't have that political will anymore, I don't think.
0: Professor Ben Cousins, Emeritus Professor, University of the Western Cape, thank you for your time this morning. Nolundi Luaya, Director of the Land and Accountability Research Centre at the University of Cape Town, thank you for your contribution too. One certainly then thinks that this moment calls for revived, renewed impetus into the, the, the question and the issue of land, when you look at the complexity of the problem and as Professor Cousins describes it, how the state has been simply overwhelmed, difficult to see how we're going to get progress on this issue um, by 2030, if all things remain the same. And that I think would be an incredible travesty of justice, if all things Remain the same. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up in the next, or in the rest rather, of this hour, we're going to be looking at artisanal miners, and in particular, female artisanal miners.